Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs, and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Dr. Danby Kim with a musical tour of field neuroscience. So field neuroscience is a framework that I developed during my PhD that describes the motivations and techniques for advancing the non-invasive study of whole intact nervous systems in natural settings. When we study what brains do or the function of brains, historically this has been referred to as the study of cognition. And cognition is traditionally focused on things that we would consider invisible to us, like introspection, memory, perception, reasoning, things all happening inside of our heads and not seen by others. Um, but neuroscience, turns out, doesn't study just the brain organ. It also studies the entire nervous system. And when the first annual review of neuroscience was published, the editors declared that for neuroscience, few things are more important than understanding how the nervous system controls behavior. So that leads to the question, what is behavior? And what is this relationship between behavior and nervous systems? And what kind of progress are we making on it? So in the 1990s, this term embodied cognition became quite popular for emphasizing how many features of cognition are deeply dependent upon characteristics of the physical body um, of an agent. And then an even newer term, psychomotricity, takes that idea a little further and says that the body doesn't just play a significant causal role in cognition, but in fact, the movements of the body from you know, microscopic to superorganism, from millisecond to lifetime scales, all of these movements are essential to the development of thought. While the fundamental function of the nervous system is to generate and control movements of the body, cognition cannot develop in the total absence of movement. So that's sort of the theoretical framing of this term psychomotricity. So does that mean all movements are behavior? So in the 1950s, one of the co-founders of the field of ethology, which is the biological study of behavior, he defined behavior as the total movements made by the intact animal. Okay, so this is a very broad definition. Um, so ever since the 50s, there have been many attempts to clarify what exactly is meant by this definition and to perhaps even update it. And so there was a recent attempt in 2017 that offers two concrete starting points for recognizing and defining behaviors. So the first strategy is that understanding behavior at a level of detail necessary to generate meaningful neural level insights will require an emphasis on natural behaviors performed by individuals. And the second starting point is that correctly labeling something as behavior will require an investigation into what the animal does to ensure its survival in its native habitat. So this two-pronged strategy for defining behaviors requires a practice of careful observation and the ability to observe freely behaving animals in natural settings. But what I also discovered is this requires a totally different way of thinking about experiments at all. So this became relevant during my first PhD project where I built a magic hunting box for rats. The name of the game is to discover that there are water ports, figure out when water is available. And it's very enriching and open-ended, especially compared to most neuroscience setups for rats. 
but what I didn't think about was the possibility that a rat might not be interested in the water ports at all and instead <laughs> just wants to escape. Yeah, and clearly this is a very clever rat and understands something fundamentally larger than the experiment itself, which is amazing. But I realized that I had no way to incorporate this data, this behavior um, into my data analysis because oftentimes by the time you are running an experiment, you've already set up your assumptions. You've already decided this is what I'm measuring. This is how I'm going to decide on significance. And then boom, something happens and you're like, oh, I, well, I, I have no way of integrating you into my model of what I'm studying here. So what I hope to achieve with this new framework is the ability to identify and characterize behaviors that are both expected and unexpected as they emerge in any setting and at any level of detail necessary to gain insights about the nervous system. So again, very ambitious, very broad. Um, that's sort of a running theme here. So today, through a combination of these slides, some live music, and a bit of help from all of you, we're gonna have a little whirlwind tour of the work I've done so far on developing these uh, aims and methods for field neuroscience. So the first strategy I'm gonna talk about is how to make the lab more like the field, or sometimes I call it field neuroscience inside the box, uh, where the box is the traditional controlled experimental approach used in most laboratory settings. And when we're trying to make the lab more like the field, um, we wanna keep the greater precision and control that comes with the laboratory setting, while also trying to increase the diversity of the organisms we can study in, in the lab, and also increasing the complexity of the environments that we use for experiments. And we also want to keep the animal as intact as possible to honor the original definition, to acknowledge that surgical procedures and implants can have a huge impact on behavior. So, you know, if you just had a major surgery or you had an enormous sensor strapped to your head, your behavior would potentially be slightly or very different. And so I want that to be um, very explicitly acknowledged in this framework. This is a cuttlefish. They're technically a mollusk, which means evolutionarily they used to have a hard shell to protect them, but they gave all of that up in favor of camouflage. And unlike the chameleon, which is perhaps a more famous example of camouflage in the animal kingdom, cuttlefish's camouflage is directly controlled by their nervous system. They have these tiny structures in their skin called chromatophores. They are little sacs of pigment and muscles radiate outwards from each sac and those muscles each have two or three neurons wrapped around them. And so when the nervous system says, I need to look a certain way, these muscles will contract and open up the tiny sack of pigment and it turns into a minuscule dot on the, the body of the cuttlefish. And so they can ra very rapidly change their, their color, their texture. Um, they can make themselves look like rock or coral. They're, they're extremely good at this. And also because they're so different from the rodents and humans that get studied most often in neuroscience, studying cuttlefish can really tell us a lot. Okay, so, but everything that makes cuttlefish great for field neuroscience makes them really, really hard for laboratory science. And so I was very, very lucky to establish a collaboration with the Marine Biological Laboratory. They provided the experimental animals, taught me how to care for captive cuttlefish. And basically what I did was, I recreated the magic hunting box, except this time we offer them a little bit of food. That's the shrimp bit. This is my robotic prey, highly sophisticated. Yes, um, it's a plastic skewer with a bit of 
defrosted cocktail shrimp on the end and it just wiggles in the water for the cuttlefish to hunt. And it works. And it turns out that even though cuttlefish hunting behavior has been well documented since the early 1900s, recently both marine biologists and recreational divers have started to notice that when cuttlefish throw their tentacles, they tend to put on a very visible, high contrast, many edged pattern. And this is very confusing because cuttlefish survive by hiding. So why would they put on such a visually conspicuous pattern exactly in the moment when they are themselves distracted by their own food. And so this was a delightful question to, to have discovered. And so we decided to study it in this magic hunting box. On one side, you've got a place where the cuttlefish can hide, and this is to help them get acclimated to the experimental setup. Over here, you, you see me preparing the robotic prey. And so the cuttlefish enters into this arena they had some days where they were fed, some days where they weren't fed, and then on the days where they weren't fed, they had 30 minutes to catch as much food as they were able to inside of this box. And yeah, they have to go inside of that little half tube in order to activate the start of the food offerings. So this is the part that's well documented. They have a, an attention phase where they clearly notice something's in the tank, they position themselves, and then in seizure, that's when they throw their tentacles. And then you'll see it appearing this high contrast, many edged pattern. Visually, whenever I showed this to people, people were always like, oh yeah, that's a thing. Something, something is happening right there. So then now we can look at, this is one animal, this is every single time it shot its tentacles and it caught something. And when you look at it in this matrix, what, you're, what you'll realize is when it catches something, that pattern stays and persists for at least three seconds. And then in the, the cases, again, same animal, every single time it shot its tentacles, but now this is when it didn't catch any food. And you'll see the pattern appear very briefly and then it fades very, very fast. So there are all these beautiful, rich details that I was seeing just you know, through observation, but teaching a computer how to see this so that I could quantify it, because that's always what they want, you know, they, they want you to put numbers to it. It was, it was really tricky. For the longest time, I had no idea what measure to use, you know, and I had to learn a lot more math <laughs> than, than I wanted to. So what we ended up doing is there was basically a algorithm that Roger and Kendra had been using to differentiate between still images of cuttlefish patterns. And so we took that and we adapted it to apply that to every frame so that now we would have this sort of filtering to see, okay, at what size, at what frequency band do the changes happen the most? Long story short, we got a series of numbers that said about half a second after the tentacle shots get thrown, that's when there's a significant difference between the situation where the cuttlefish catches something and where the cuttlefish doesn't catch something. So it's really fast. That's when the, by the, half a second later, they've already decided, okay, we haven't caught anything. We need to go back to camouflaging because we don't want to get eaten while we are trying to hunt ourselves. So what does all of this mean? <laughs> so when the cuttlefish is hunting, it spends most of its time in camouflage to hide from both predators and prey. And other studies have found that when the cuttlefish is hunting a larger or more challenging prey, such as a crab, cuttlefish will put on strobing patterns, something really visually striking and bold in an attempt to mesmerize or stun the prey. 
when it makes the strike in order to catch the food, even though the tentacle shot is very visually conspicuous, our current guess is that by suddenly becoming so visible, what they're hoping to do is startle the predator as well, to make the predator go, oh wait, maybe you're not as little or as edible as I thought you were. And that instant of hesitation could be enough to already give the cuttlefish a chance to realize, oh, okay, I'm also in danger, gotta put back on the camouflage and run away. So all of that, many, many years, goes into this one tiny little nugget of, well, we think it's a signal to make predators he he hesitate. Uh, okay, so to bring it back to the framework that we're building for field neuroscience, the Cuddle Shuttle explored a very different animal model from the ones usually used in traditional laboratory neuroscience. It gave me experience with building natural and open-ended environments, and it let me practice thinking about experimental design in a way that allows me to study unexpected behaviors. Uh, and last of all, it was entirely non-invasive, relying on high-speed videos of freely behaving animals. So this brings us to the first science song, which also has a dance. It's supposed to help you remember everything that I learned about cuttlefish. So, okay, we're gonna first learn the dance to verse one, and this is sort of, you know, the background information you need to know about cuttlefish and why they hunt the way they do. So if everyone can hold up three fingers and make a W, yes. So cuttlefish have W-shaped pupils. We think it's because they are sensitive to polarization and this shape of the pupils helps their eyes detect the direction of the light. Normally cuttlefish eyes are on the sides of their head because they are a prey animal. And prey animals, their eyes are on the sides of their head so that they can see behind them 360 degrees all around them. However, when they hunt, they can squish their face and bring their eyes forward like us so that they have motion, better motion and depth perception. So that goes with those words. W eyes looking side to side, squish to the front when the shrimp's on the run. Okay, so now, instead of three fingers, are we having fun yet? Yes? <laughs> Great. Instead of three fingers, you're going to morph it into four cuttlefish arms, and your thumbs are now your tentacles, and now you're a cuttlefish just hanging out in the ocean, okay? We got, you have a Morpheus tangle, got eight arms to wrangle, all right? And no spine, give us a good wiggle, no spine, but masterminds of fooling your sight. All right, excellent, great. Very good dancing, everyone. Okay, so the chorus is about that hunting behavior that I was studying, okay. This takes a little more finger gymnastics, all right. So you, you've, got, you've got your hands like this, and what you're gonna do is you're gonna put them together to make sort of this triangle, okay? So this is a cuttlefish just chilling, resting in the ocean. When it enters the attention phase, the middle arms go up, okay? So when I ask you, are you ready to hunt? You're gonna say, yes. yes. <laughs> then middle arms up. You're gonna sneak, 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 stretch, 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 wonderful. Now prepare the tentacles. What happens now is, when the cuttlefish is ready to throw the tentacles, these two fingers become sort of like a barrel pointing towards whatever it's trying to shoot its tentacles at. And then they'll kind of splay out the last outer arms, almost like a tripod. It's like, it's like this is, you know, they're stabilizing themselves and they're getting ready to, to shoot the tentacles, okay? So prepare the tentacles, make a tripod, and throw by pushing out your thumbs. 
because those are your tentacles. All right, are we ready? Let, let's try that again. Here, prepare the tentacles, make a tripod and throw. It's okay, you can just, yeah, just, just go for the throwing, yeah. <laughs> then I'm gonna ask you, did you catch or miss? And since we cannot actually, you know, actively change our skin in the same way, if you decide I have just caught something, you're gonna give me another big wiggle. And if you think you haven't caught anything, you're gonna go back to, I'm a hiding, chilled out cuttlefish, okay? Now I'm gonna trust you to remember these dances, because I, 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 I have to play the accompaniment for us. Also, disclaimer, I wrote these songs on bass and I only recently moved them over to ukulele because I think it sounds better, but also I'm not entirely as practiced as I would like to be, so I apologize uh, ahead of time. So, um... W eyes, look inside to side. Squish to the front when the shrimp's on the run. Amorphous tangle, got eight arms to wrangle. No spine but masterminds, a fool in your sight. Yeah! Nice. Are you ready to hunt? Then middle arms up. Sneak, 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 sneak. Stretch, 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 stretch. Now prepare the tentacles. Make a tripod and throw. Did you catch or miss? The pattern will let you know. Nice. array in their skin is how they betray when they decide whether to attack or hide nice uh, but when they have a secret they know how to keep it cause light they polarize for colorblind eyes Woo! oh that was amazing <laughs> Really good dances, like, um, yeah, very good. Oh, nice. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. Okay, <clears throat> right, so back to our whirlwind tour. So the next strategy I'm gonna talk about is making the field more like the lab or field neuroscience outside the box. So the question that needs to be answered here is, how do we take our lab equipment and our procedures and modify them so that we can take them out of the lab and just leave them in the world, okay? The lab equipment needs to survive being out in all kinds of weather and being handled by anyone. And then on top of that, how do we entice people and animals to interact with our lab equipment once we've you know got it out there? So the criteria that I feel like we needed to focus on, um, or that we did focus on for my next project was, um, to rely on using very large sample sizes of data. Why? Because in the lab we have the precision to use a very small sample size and still get you know, something that is meaningful. However, 
in the world, we're, we're told this all the time, oh, the world is messy, you know, like it, it's, it's very chaotic and you won't get very good precision. So I was like, okay, so then let's just have really big sample sizes. Even though we all have the technology we need to do field neuroscience, like our phones can all do high-speed video now, right? The tech we all carry around in our pockets are not open source and therefore we're unable to customize them to the specific needs or situations that we might encounter. And that's exactly what we, we need to be able to do with field neuroscience tools. And if our field neuroscience tools will be left out in the wild for long periods of time without constant supervision, these tools need to be easy to operate and maintain. So if I have to call up customer service and wait five hours, that's just not going to work. Um, and then lastly, the experimental procedures again need to be non-invasive um, because invasive procedures do require the control, the precision, and the hygiene of laboratory settings, and we simply don't have access to that in the field. Okay, so as a proof of concept of this strategy, we built an experiment embedded in an exhibit called Surprising Minds. And once again, I was lucky enough to develop a collaboration, this time with Sea Life Brighton, where we were able to install this interactive station. So that's Clive and Hazel. They built the outer casing. This is Dario and Gonzalo. They worked on the software running the experiment and they made it super robust. You know, I'm really grateful to all of these people. So you can can see there's a viewing port and there are two small infrared cameras that we refer to as the eye cameras. Those eye cameras would record people's eyes up close while they watch short videos of animals doing surprising things on that main display monitor. We also placed a web camera inside the station uh, just to double check that, you know, everything in there is going the way that we think it's going. And then we also had some external monitors that gave feedback to anyone who may be with the participant actively engaging the experiment. So usually if you're going to an aquarium, you know, it's with your family, it's with a school group. And so we thought, okay, it needs to be enticing and exciting for all those people who are just standing around while one person is doing something with our exhibit. All these components were controlled by a mini PC, and then we also eventually translated the experiment into several other languages to make the experience accessible to people for whom English is not their first language. So here's an example of what you might see when engaging the Surprising Minds exhibit. In the middle is the view from the world camera, so that's what the eyes are seeing. And on either side are views from the eye cameras. So we start with a calibration sequence, then a randomly chosen video clip, and then everyone sees this video clip. It's quite YouTube famous. So this is an octopus rapidly decamouflaging, inking at the camera and running away. We picked the octopus clip for everyone to watch because it was originally posted on YouTube. It collected a ton of comments about how surprising it was, how you know shocked people were when the octopus suddenly appears. So we thought, okay, it's withstood a field test of are you a surprising video? And so we thought, this is a good one. This is a good one to show everyone. And so we ran a pilot phase during which a host had to explain the exhibit, invite people to participate in the study and give instructions on how to activate the interactive stations. And we ran this hosted phase for about a month. And during that time, we already engaged over 2000 people. And then I want to make a quick shout out to, uh, I had a Nuffield research placement student, Rihanna. She also did a lot of the hosting and helped figure out what is the best way to explain what's going on to people. And so encouraged by the success of our pilot phase, we made improvements to the exhibit in order to fully automate it, including adding signage to explain and give instructions. And then it ran for 13 months 
And we were able to engage over 24,000 aquarium visitors. And these were people of all ages from all over the world. Big sample size and also decidedly more diverse than your usual psychophysics experiment where often it's like 20 white male American college students doing this for school credit. <laughs> and then, so since everybody saw both the calibration and the octopus sequences, we used those sequences to benchmark our experiment embedded in exhibit setup. And we found that we were able to measure pupil size and movement precisely enough and with enough statistical power, not only to support findings that already exist in the literature, but also to motivate further studies in field neuroscience using eye tracking. And then with the help of additional students, we then turned the experiment embedded in an exhibit into a wearable experiment. It's from Pupil Labs, it's an eye tracking like headset that we could take to parks and to festivals. And then we recreated the entire hardware setup of the Surprising Minds exhibit using entirely open source components affordable for individuals. And so this was for a educational workshop that the company that I work for that we run, we work with teenagers currently in Portugal and in the UK, teaching them how to do field neuroscience. And one of our students here replicated the entire thing with uh, what's called a latte panda. It's kind of like an Arduino. It's one of these field programmable computers, but it actually can run an entire operating system. And it's about the size of a small tablet large phone. So it's kind of a perfect device um, for playing around with field neuroscience and making it affordable and accessible and open source. So once again, these were the criteria that we were trying to test out to see, can we manage this given current state and availability of technology, not only for you know, a well-funded laboratory, but also for individuals who are science curious. So this brings me to the next song. This song is just a reminder to me, there's really nothing that replaces just you actually being there and observing with your own eyes. There's no amount of technology that can replace that. And I think this is a really important thing to emphasize that neuroscience is a really young field and observation is incredibly important for any science, but especially young sciences. So this song is called, We Don't Need the Robots, But It's Okay to Love Them. <laughs> We don't need the robots to feel for us If someone else breathes, no oxygen fills my lungs Remember to feed the organ that believes in the spirit of being kind Hands and mind are mine to give to you We don't need the robots to work for us If someone else sweats, I have not gained your trust Remember we bleed from underneath an armor Pretending to save us time Hands and mind are mine to give to you <laughs> okay, so the original goal of field neuroscience was this, to identify and characterize both expected and unexpected behaviors in any setting and at the level of detail necessary for neural level insights.
And this is sort of the call to action. These are the principles for defining behavior that motivated my field neuroscience framework. I'm sure in future, hopefully, other people will come up with additional frameworks and then we can have a diversity of frameworks to work with. And I've talked a lot about the benefits of investigating what animals do to survive in their native habitats, but not so much about this emphasis on natural behaviors performed by individuals. And I think this is an area that has a lot of room for improvement and potential for impact um, because everyone has a nervous system. We all use one every day. And anyone who's ever been curious about how their body works or why people or animals behave in certain ways, you have all unwittingly engaged in neuroscience. And in the same way that it's useful for everyone to know how to read or write or a little bit of first aid, a certain baseline of scientific literacy or the ability to apply scientific methods of understanding can also be super useful, um, not just for neuroscience as like a research field, but also for the individuals involved, for all of you, for everybody who's alive. So I'm, I'm very passionate about education and rethinking the way that we structure our society. So then the question becomes, how do we build towards a neurocentric society where everyone is empowered to study their own brain regardless of what they choose to do with their lives? How do we engage as many people as possible with the future possibilities of field neuroscience? One strategy is to turn your science into music and have everyone dance along to it, as, as I've just done. But another existing tool that has a great track record for engaging many people with the possibilities of the future is science fiction. And in fact, the golden age of science fiction had a huge impact on science research programs today. Many of the adults currently working on space exploration, robotics, brain-computer interfaces, they grew up in a culture fascinated by stories like this, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, um, I also put Kim Stanley Robinson because he's my personal favorite, Ursula K. Le Guin, Anne McCaffrey, Octavia Butler, Nettie Okorafor, and I'm especially inspired by these last two and the entire genre of Afrofuturism because these stories weave together ancient traditions with the far-flung future and they remind me that even today adapting and advancing doesn't need to throw away the past. Knowing and embracing the past can make us even more resilient to an unpredictable future. And this theme is especially profound to me as an American born to Korean immigrants. I only recently began to learn more about the history of my extended family and the history of Korea and the details of its relationship to the US and that has definitely impacted how I think about myself and my own mental model of how my mind works. So to communicate more concretely and vividly about the future that I imagined for field neuroscience, I decided to write my own speculative fiction story in the form of a near future science fiction graphic novel about two teenagers living on a post-climate apocalypse earth who must wield the ancient art of neuroscience against an oppressive world government. That's my, that was my Kickstarter pitch. The graphic novel combines a primer for neuroscience, so there are several neuroscience diagrams. It's uh, aimed at readers 13 to 17 years old, simply because I work with that age group a lot, but I found that aiming for teenagers generally works for everyone. And this is all combined with a story of a very possible, very near future when Earth goes through a climate apocalypse. It also explores the possible societies that could develop afterwards. And these are societies that have integrated field neuroscience into their daily lives in order to survive this catastrophe. 
And even though the story universe is very large in scope, the plot is grounded in a friendship between two teenagers for whom it's totally normal to interact with materials and other tech through the activity of their nervous systems. So by showing people what, 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 what life might be like in a future where field neuroscience is well-developed and widely practiced, I'm really hoping to motivate other experts in various fields and science-curious humans of all ages to engage in field neuroscience. Which brings me to the third song. It's the most depressing of, of my songs, but I feel like it's an important thing to say. Jackets in June just ain't my kind of tune for a plump summer. Voraciously take the heat that it make, decimate glutton's pace. Big and eat our cake today. Don't want to wait. Today won't be long till we're gone. So be merry with the fates. They for your blood they will make it flood into cold coffers procedural twine ensnares our minds you're inclined to be blind turn the other cheek today can't handle the weight of today won't be long till it's gone now we're wedded to our fate two days to look beyond the haze of money making plays they eat the atmosphere don't know how to They only keep us to bleed us and feed the machine of lust. Today, gotta learn how to wait. So, in conclusion, how do we study the thing that lets us study anything? Um, if it seems impossible for one brain to understand the brain as a general concept, what if we just got more brains to study brains? So this is actually my long-term goal, <laughs> to empower everyone with the tools and knowledge to apply neuroscientific methods of understanding to their daily lives and their social structures. And this might seem, again, like a very lofty goal, but I think we can do it. And in fact, 
I think we are all living examples of what is possible when members of a large and complex system figure out how to coordinate and cooperate. So the average human body has somewhere around 37 trillion cells, and they've all figured out a way to cooperate in order to exist as a multicellular organism. But then if we think of one of the simplest creatures with a nervous system, the C. elegans nematode, its body is made up of only two to 3,000 cells. And we currently have almost 8 billion humans on Earth, and we are already so globally interconnected in terms of our food supply, our communication systems, and the spread of both internet memes and diseases. So when we can talk to anyone anywhere on the planet instantaneously, we're making the same initial steps that cells had to make in order to transition from unicellular to multicellular beings. So in a way, humans as a species are already becoming a planetary superorganism, and we face similar challenges. To coordinate a large, complex, somewhat chaotic system in order to face the unknown and the unexpected, and individual animals have to do this to survive as an intact organism. And as the recent global pandemic has demonstrated, we need to improve our ability to coordinate as a human superorganism in order to survive as an intact society. So can we learn something about how to organize ourselves at this superorganism scale by studying how cells, especially nervous system cells, have organized themselves to become multicellular creatures? I have high hopes that field neuroscience can help us build that bridge. And that brings me to my final song. So I, I started using this term mind shape mostly as a like, oh, what are you attracted to? It's like, is it, is it like looks or someone who's, you know, like really into the same hobbies as you? And I'm like, well, I am attracted to people who have interesting mind shapes that are willing to explore our mind shapes together and to see how we fit together, how we're different and to celebrate that. And so this is a song about mind shapes. When our minds began to shape, faced an unknown landscape full of fatal fruits. But we move, cause that's what living things do. Yeah, we groove and we rise to unchain our minds from the vines of the vices of the status quo. They want obedient drones who will labor for the myth of a rich man's favor instead of loving their neighbor. We all long to belong, sing along harmonies of all the same song. Oh, oh. shape faced an unknown landscape full of fatal fruits but we move because that's what living things do yeah we groove and we rise to unchain our minds from the vines of the vices of the status quo Yeah.
sorry, last few slides. Just a quick thanks to my PhD lab, all of my scientific colleagues and friends, everyone who gave me funding. That was also very important. To the artists of my graphic novel, I got, I had the amazing privilege to work with 17 incredibly talented artists from all around the world. The publishing of it and the printing of it was funded through Kickstarter, so I'm also incredibly grateful to all the Kickstarter backers. If you are interested in a copy, you can go online and order from my online web order form. And also thank you to all of you and to Agile Rabbit for having me.